This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann at Otago Polytechnic in Dunedin, and I am joined from Auckland by James Harrison. Welcome, James. Are you on campus, James, or are you working from home today? Well, I'm principally off campus these days. Um, I only go in for one or two assessments and also some inductions when I'm meeting new students to our Otago Polytechnic International Centre in Auckland. I actually live away from Auckland, some 70 k's north, in a little burg called Snells Beach. But uh, I've principally been working from home um, to a greater or lesser extent since 1991. So I'm well used to having my own home office. I have a separate room for that uh, so I can have all my paraphernalia out in front of me and I, I can sort of, when I shut the door, it's like putting an iron, iron panel up against, you know, me thinking about it. So I'm very used to working in a home environment and I find it very satisfying, creative and, um, you know, um, what's the word productive for me so for somebody who was already used to working at home did you find that the working from home during the pandemic was different um no not 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 really at all except i was because i, I mean of course our work in uh, our work with students is also principally online and through email online communication as well so no i don't find it a problem but I think in terms of uh, when one starts out on a new situation where you don't know somebody, and that's why I have a physical induction these days with my students, is it's always helpful to meet people to start with to see the colour of their eyes and how they how they are in person. And then it's much easier to work with them online from that point onwards. So for those of you that, those of the listeners that don't know what it is that you do, what is it that you you do james um well i'm a facilitator academic mentor and assessor in capable new zealand i'm part of the same team as you sam uh, i have been working with capable for five years and i found it an amazing journey particularly in the sense of its learner centeredness and how we are dealing with students because in effect we are acting like the famed Oxford and Cambridge tutorial model. And I found that to be particularly um, useful for our students from the 
point of view, it's very personal. And we are building an equitable, equal relationship with our students in order to help them um, uh, get the best out of the programs we offer. And of course, those programs are um, adapted particularly for them. They are working with their own experience uh, primarily in the programs. And all of this learner-centeredness and equality of relationship predicates the great success we've had in this program. And that learner-centeredness means that we are not the the expert in that that field. We don't profess to to know more than the students do, the learners do about their particular field. So our success is much more about helping other people succeed. Yes, absolutely. And um, I, I think that um, what I've also learned is that the personal relationship dimension helps considerably because um, a great deal of success in learning is about your emotional state of mind. And if you're making people feel comfortable, that helps them learn. And 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 the work that I've recently completed on my doctorate, you know, indicates that I need to do a lot more research into the emotional side of learning and the relationship one has with other people who support one's learning. Because at the moment, conventional learning where a teacher is teaching a student creates an unequal relationship of dependency. And one of the things that's necessary in a fast changing world like now is we need um, learners to become confident, independent, uh, adaptable practitioners who are to have their own learning processes and be confident with them. So we talk about lifelong learning, and I'm interesting that you're talking there about the emotional side of learning. Is that the job that we have, is to not just engage people on the learning, but to help them with how to to learn, how to continue learning? Well, I think first and foremost, it's about... Um, helping the students see for themselves at any stage of development that they are competent at making their own decisions, they are competent at coming up with ideas, and even if those ideas are a bit, you know, away from where we hope to get them uh, at some point in time, that's no problem because we need to come from their frame of reference and learning is about adding to and building on what one can already know and do confidently and competently. And so my whole approach is about um, working with a student to make sure that they are getting more confidence, therefore more motivation, well, getting more success, which gives them more motivation and gives them more confidence to be successful with their Um, practice in life and this has got to do with process it's not just got to do with outcomes it's got to do with integration of all that they are with all that they're doing that integration suggests something about identity well yeah that's absolutely right yeah identity for me as I've as I've found in my doctoral studies is a summation of all that we are, character-wise, values-wise, um, hopes and uh, and fears-wise, etc., etc. That is our identity. Identity consists of our conscious identity, 
uh, which is what we know and understand about ourselves, our psychological identity, which is, uh, you know, our un unconscious uh, dimensions of our nature and uh, intuition and capability, and then our social dimensions of which, you know, others will be aware of, but we may not be aware of ourselves. And, uh, you know, I think it's very important that, you know, in a development approach, uh, we're helping the students understand that for themselves. And it doesn't mean that you and I or our learners have to learn in precisely the same way as us, but to work in a way where they're confident that the results they're going to get are going to be uh, merit worthy and useful for themselves as much as anyone else. Working with learners who are mostly working in their professional fields during the pandemic, do you think that the pandemic has affected people's professional identity? I mean, it's not as if they've gone through a, a war or, uh, you know, and it is certainly not an apocalypse. But do you think it's changed how people are thinking about their professional practice or their professional identity? Uh, yes, I'm sure it is because a lot of the time um, we operate on autopilot. It's, it's like driving a car. We only, when we're driving a car and come to a situation which requires our immediate attention, do we become conscious that that we need to and therefore are conscious. But most of the time, we're operating unconsciously on autopilot. And the significant findings I found in my doctorate was I was talking to highly successful people who were unconscious of their own progress and development and couldn't describe it to me because they'd never thought about it. Do you think, what's all of disruption? I mean, if, if we generalise from the pandemic to a, a disruption, is it, do we form that identity in those moments of disruption or is it despite the disruption? How does that fit in? Well, the disruption forces consciousness and attention on the situation. And in that, in that moment, one starts then saying, I have no previous... Uh, um, experience of this or reference to this and you're using all your faculties sight sound communication whatever to try and address the new situation now obviously for people who uh, have been unconscious and are very used to a particular way of life like going to the office every day and speaking to their fellows and stuff and working on a routine yes that can cause quite some angst when it when it first happens and COVID has has created that but I think what's happened nine months 12 months down the track is a lot of people have said my god I didn't realize I was on such a treadmill and now to have these options and the way I can work without having to travel three hours a day or talk to people you know for a lot of the day I've, I'm far more productive and I'm far more creative it's about it's about becoming conscious uh, and, and, and moving from a status quo to something which is better. And once you know that and know that you can change it through becoming conscious and addressing it, then you will move into a new scenario. And, and, and this comes to the sort of paradigms we live under, which are belief systems, which stay constant due to vested interests or other reasons uh, until such time as it's clearly obvious that it's not what it is and you have to change that. 
So a good example of a paradigm change for me a long time ago was seeing the first shot of the Earth from the moon and realizing, oh my God, we're a little um, little um, tiny planet in a major, major space and, and, and how fragile that is, really. Yes, and that... Was it the blue marble? The blue marble and the earth yeah. rise. That's the, the yeah. images you're talking about, isn't it? Yeah. They, yeah. It's, it's amazing that it took us, humanity, getting away from the earth to be able to see the earth for what it is. Well, again, I mean, that has an analogy to me, and I love analogies in learning, where you can bring all sorts of other experience to bear on a, a given situation, which is to... Um, in every situation which is new is to take a big picture view to start with rather than to try and build up from a base of detail and then hopefully put it together at the end. I mean, part of the problem we have with learning at the moment is conventional learning starts with the bits and is very poor at integrating them into a whole. And in fact, I think we need to see the picture playing in the sandpit and stuff deal with big pictures and then deal with the detail associated with the big, big, big pictures and that's much more coherent than the other way around thinking about space flight the spacex learnt from a big picture that turned into lots of little pictures this morning with sm9 <laughs> exploding on impact now we've been listening to well you haven't but i have to the first of your music choices. It's got the longest ever introduction, so I've been running it underneath us. I think that they're about to start singing. So we're listening, going to listen to the new and Afrobeat. How do you find this song? Uh, yeah, I, um, I obviously uh, have a, a lot of time uh, accessing YouTube and others, and uh, I had a good friend who's now gone back to Britain who introduced me to Afrobeat and we found this uh, Chilean group called New and Afrobeat who were actually working with uh, the people who created Afrobeat, Fela Kuti, um, to um, start copying his songs and developing them. And, uh, and this was an amazing track and, and, and it's a fusion track and I'm, I'm very eclectic in my musical taste and I like the fact that you're bringing together jazz, improvisation and this great beat that the Afrobeat is. So this is, is it Suen Cutie singing yeah, Figgis' father's song? Yeah. Fella Cutie's Opposite People. Yeah. And um, Fella Cutie ha- um, was famous for his opposition to a lot of things he found going on in Nigeria and many of his songs are political.
is a group that I'm going to be looking up more. We were talking, James, about SpaceX, or at least I was. How do you think that, that businesses learn? I mean, we hear about, you know, those sorts of statements like, in order to succeed, you must first fail, or if you haven't, you know, you can't succeed until you've failed several times, all those sorts of business startup things. Do you think that the those things are actually like work in practice that that businesses actually successfully do that um no because in a lot of cases they're very risk averse and they've got investors money and they don't want to destroy it but i mean take for example the 1990s organization re-engineering and downsizing and outsourcing most of its production to china and it created huge value loss to American business and industry over that 10 year period and put a whole generation of people out of work for the rest of their lives. Um, and that was purely to try and increase the profit for investors. And my problem with that today, and it's another paradigm problem, is that the only way an economy can run is through uh, investors investing money in organisations and organisations producing goods and services to sell to the to the to the societies and stuff. And I don't believe that is the case. I think that we are, you know, moving into an era now where I think that corporates as they are today are dinosaurs. And the fact is it's not using our intellectual capital that each of us have in an effective way. You and I have no um, options when we're working for an organisation to be beholden to what the investors want, which is a profit. Whereas if I, you and I choose to work in a social network or some other network of high trust, we can choose how much of that is going to be monetized and how much of that is going to be simply doing good for or creating sustainability. Because my concept of sustainability is not simply nature and its problems, which of course are manifest, but it's also about our state as human beings, where in fact it's being proposition right now that it's far better if we can use AI and robots to do all that we do and keep us somewhere marginalized than to use the most successful robots that we'll ever see and understand and that is human beings and as one of our learners argued in an assessment uh, last week that we've been we've been looking in the wrong place we've been worried about the robots taking over but we've been looking for the humanoid ones. And that's not where the threat is. The threat comes from the, the AI that is automating ordinary jobs and increasingly automating knowledge jobs. Well, um, if one looks at the period from 1970 when computers first came out and 2000, I think that the net gain of jobs as a result of that, even though it took other people's jobs, was far in excess of the jobs that were lost. And indeed, I think it's about um, reshaping society where we can have a lot more creative and productive society from a per point of view of human beings and what human beings need to uh, satisfy themselves in the world without being selfish, that, that will, that will create a potentially very good future. And in fact, I think the COVID pandemic has been good for, you know, 
allowing those priorities to become more visible and apparent. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā mihi aroha nui, kia koutou, ko tāhua hau. I hope you're all having the best day, beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. And I really hope that wherever you are, wherever's happy this journey that we're all on together, proving to be very rewarding, very sustained and illuminating for you more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's perfect and here maybe to thank you. So I had a wonderful adventure and of course I'm very excited to talk to you about it. And I uh, had a very exciting time and rushing about doing all sorts of jobs and getting things organised and sending off lots of bird feeders and sending off lots of photos of beautiful Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, my heart's home workplace, Radio New Zealand, so it can be celebrated nationwide, which is what we want. And in the process of all of this, I was listening to the Eurythmics, so I was getting really, really pumped up and really excited. And of course, I love how music can do this for us. It's just so powerful and so magical, I love it. And then I went for a beach walk with my beautiful friend who's not very well and really wanting to just give them lots and lots of amazing experience that they will get a lot out of and really enjoy. And in the process of all of this, my little keys that are very brightly coloured and have lots of dangly adornments on them, I had dropped them on the ground earlier in the day and this little hook that normally hooks them onto my little bag fell off and I thought, all right, I'm to, you know, be aware of this and everything like that. Anyway, when we went on this beach adventure, I had them kind of hooked over my butterfly belt with a with a hair bobble and I thought, I'll be okay, thing like that. And we went out to our little heart-to-heart log and had our heart-to-heart and then in the process of all of this, when we stood up from our heart-to-heart, I realised the keys were gone and in this time, of course, we had a big beach adventure and the tide had risen and it was all very dramatic. So we went back along the beach, scouring the beach and we couldn't find the keys. And so I realised, you know, oh my goodness, the keys to my whole universe, to Orokanui, to my house, to my car, everything. I thought they swept out to sea. And so luckily, uh, all these wonderful people came to my aid. So I had called the AA and they came and opened up the car. And I luckily had a spare key in the car, so that was really good. And then serendipitously, I was walking back to, you know, ask all the cafes. I went and asked, no one had handed them in. And I met up with some of my friends and they came with me and we walked back along the beach and we looked and we looked and we looked. We went to Heart to Heart Log. We flipped it over and we dug around sand and did a dance in the sand, scouring with our feet, but we couldn't find keys. And then, as I was heading back, I farewelled them and everything like that. I uh, decided, right, I'm going to harness the power of social media, and I put up a post saying I'd lost my keys. And about five minutes later, I had a message saying, is this about your keys and someone had posted about them on a group that I don't belong to at all so it's just so lucky that this lady that I know does and so I'm able to find them and the wonderful restaurant that they'd been handed into they were so kind they stayed you know they stayed there they waited for me even though they'd been closed for a long time it was very late at night I was able to go and get my keys so just this huge wave of relief and gratitude you know, washed upon the shore of my inner beach. So, so happy and so grateful. And what this really reminded me of is that, you know, even when we are in these moments of, of complication, there's so many supportive aspects of our lives that come and help us. And I was talking to my friends about it as we were walking down the beach and they were saying, no, when you are, you know, giving of yourself in this way that often the universe will reciprocate. And so 
you know, I really feel as much as we can do to look after each other and support each other. And it comes back to us in these amazing, amazing ways. When we least expect it and when we really, really need it, it comes back to us. So thank you for all the giving and the support that you are creating around you in your life. And I look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thanks so much. Kakiti. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with James Harrison. James, you live at Snell's Beach. It's a nice mix of of countryside and seaside and nature around you. Yes, it's a great area. Um, and in fact, one of the reasons I like it so much is it's um, New Zealand Pacifica. And I was born on the east coast of New Zealand at Tauranga. And I've always loved the Pacific Ocean. It's a much more benign and gentle ocean than the Tasman Sea uh, and um, it has wonderful swimming, wonderful beaches. Um, I, I like Snell's Beach because it's not overcrowded at the present time, but um, in terms of community, it isn't the same communities I'm used to from living in Britain where you live in little villages and you know everyone in that way and those people have perhaps been there most of their lives. And so, you know, we are not very good here at creating uh, new communities where um, people get together. I mean, you are you either get together with kids at school with other people or you get together through social events like rugby and so on. But there's a lot of other people with a lot of other interests who don't get involved in community because they, they're not participating in any of those things. So, yes, I know my neighbours, but I'm not particularly, you know, social with my neighbours. My social dimensions come from other people I know from my professional background and work and things like that. So you've always lived by the sea? Um, No, I haven't always lived by the sea. Um, I do like living in an environment where there is a reasonable amount of accessible, fairly um, undeveloped nature. um, uh, Because um, what it tells me and shows me is that life is going on uh, um, to a good extent without human involvement. And secondly, what it brings to me is that it's far beyond me in terms of some of its power and significance. So I, I think that one of the things that I like so much about New Zealand and some New Zealand kids who are able to grow up in this environment, as I did, was that they learn to respect nature, particularly, you know, if they're surfers and things like that. They have a much better innate understanding of the real world. And in fact, I think the real world is a very essential part of all our lives because it's enables us to see what is real and going on outside of us and outside of our control rather than a virtual environment and secondly the significance of collaboration that's going on uh, in our ecosystem compared with the competition and I mean of course I come back to ourselves in that where you know we can liken ourselves to spaceships to the bugs where, you know, 70% of our cells in our body are not human. <laughs> and are responsible for, the, for, for, the, for, for, for us living and being conscious right now. You have a lot of international students who come from environments that are quite different, heavily urbanised, industrial or post-industrial perhaps. Do you think that they get the the sense of 
not just sustainability as a sort of theoretical concept, but as you're describing that kind of one with nature that you might get when you're surfing. Oh, I think it's possible for them to become aware of it. I, I think that in a lot of cases, the other cultures that people come from is that they've had very little leisure and their noses have been to the grindstone following particular paradigm approaches in political and commercial senses and have never um, sniffed the roses, so to speak. But I, I believe that, uh, you know, um, having a pet or uh, an animal to look after or having outside when you start going and looking at things for real, um, you quickly start to work out that, you know, there is more than thee and me. <laughs> Let's take the second of your music choices. Let's have some of the Lark Ascending, uh, the Vaughan Williams with the London Philharmonic. Why this one? Oh, look, um, Vaughan Williams is a quintessential English composer. And when I listen to Vaughan Williams, I'm always reminded of the um, countryside in Britain and its variety and its beauty. And it's long history of settlement I mean you can go to any county in Britain and it's hugely different from the next county adjacent to it in terms of landscape geology, vegetation language, culture etc etc
James, we've seen lots of societal change over the last few months, the last year. What do you think is going to stick and what do you hope will stick? Oh, well, I take heart in the fact that people are becoming more conscious of the state of the world's climate right now and the potential impact we've had on it and the need to do something about that. And I think that the fact that we no longer need to go into work every day and commute and drive and stuff must have cut down. Well, it did cut down our emissions significantly for a period of time when we we're all in lockdown. But I mean, um, we can now see what that will will do in terms of being able to take it out as we introduce more electric vehicles and transport. So I think that that is likely to stick. And I also think that people have been able to get to enjoy and look at their families in a different way and spend more time with their families um, just doing things together. Uh, and, and so I think that that will have quite an impact. And I, I don't I, I think it's going to help take away from the very materialistic, you know, having to go. The only entertainment we can do is go into a shopping mall, which is human made, look at human goods, buy human goods that we don't really need. Um, you know, I think it's opening that sort of uh, dimension up in people's lives. So, yeah, that's that I think is going to stick. And I also think that, um, you know, the sort of videos that are available on YouTube made by normal people in their interactions with animals and some of the things that people are seeing what animals are doing in terms of communication and insight and emotional um, connection with owners is also a major thing in other words whales weren't very much in our consciousness till you know we've got all the internet and the video of them and how they're <laughs> treating their their calves and all this sort of thing before so you know all of that awareness is growing and i i i i think that you know we we visibly you know, uh, and emotionally wince at the thought of, you know, um, the Amazon being burnt out and, and, and what's going on in Indonesia with huge palm oil plantations and stuff. And hopefully, you know, we can do something about that. I believe we have the science to do something about it. I think it's the will and I think it's the political will. So, you know, up to a week or two ago, we had an incumbent as a president of the United States who thought nothing of those things, but now we do. And I think that, you know, hopefully that's going to be a positive development. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Um, my biggest success is probably helping some 50-odd students of mine personal, who I've personally facilitated uh, recognise who they really are, what their capabilities are, and the transformation they've gone through to what they're doing now. So we're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in our team what is the superpower that's got you into our mansion? Um, my passion about how you can transform yourself through real education. And what I mean by that is not learning stuff, but learning about yourself, 
how to change yourself, how to progress and how to make an impact in the world which you can feel emotionally satisfied about. Do we need to transform education to achieve that? Absolutely we do. It's failing a lot of people at the moment. What's your vision of a transformed education system? One which is focusing on the individual and allowing the individual to find their own talents and helping them build those talents and its use to give them full independence as an um, uh, adult human being for the future. Would that focus fact, on... The- would that focus on the individual, though, not mean that people would just do whatever they like? I'm being the devil's advocate here. Well, you could argue that how much of doing what other people want you to do over a 10 to 15 year curriculum does for you <laughs> in the last 50 years. And I, I have to say that, you know, unfortunately, a lot of people who are being made redundant right now have no fallback on anything. And the reason for that is they've only been told stuff. They've never been told how to move, you know, to to do something different or to understand that what they've got will allow them to do something different. And so they have no built in, um, what's the word, sustainability for their own future. They are hugely dependent. And we need an independent, conscious society. We don't need a dependent, um, dependent uh, society in which there are huge problems. I mean, um, societal wise, which you know, if you if you help educate people, it'll go away. And I don't mean education in the conventional sense. I mean, if we have kids playing in the sandpit at four or five, why can't kids be doing real stuff when they're seven and eight that they're passionate about, looking after animals or doing projects that are helping real people with real things? Because their pride in their parents' pride at them doing that is a, is an encouragement in its own right. So do we need, to the, start, we need to start early in making these change makers? Well, we need to carry on the way the children have been up till the time they go to school. And when we sit them down in a class and say, now you start listening, don't start, stop exploring. It's no time for exploring now. You've got to do work. Well, no. You, you carry on building around their creativity. You carry on building around what they're already interested in and investigating and gradually make them conscious of how they're becoming successful at it. And this is processes and it's processes of problem solving. And it's being able to make mistakes and not say, no, that's bad. You've got to do it this way and get it right first time every time. You've got to make huge amount of mistakes because the more mistakes you make, the faster you learn. And you don't call them mistakes. You just you just say, well, it didn't work, did it? So what can we try differently next time? Given the structure of our world and how much already, you know, you and I don't have to grow out and grow vegetables and fruit in our gardens to survive. We're far above that and we can exercise, you know, allow other people to do that for us and we pay for that. Well, it's exactly the same in in other areas. It doesn't matter what people do these days. If it, if it's if it's not damaging to people and to environment and, and it's useful, well, let them do what they damn well like. They need a basis of reading and writing in order to or and information technology in order to pick things up. But don't feel you've got to give them the standard curriculum. It's a waste of space. 
They'll use the curriculum. They'll go learn things when they need to learn them. Don't look at it the other way around, just in case you've got to have this. It is remarkable seeing the people like um, my kids' ages, Henry in particular, because he's the technology bent. He never not doesn't know how to do things because he knows he can look it up. He knows that somebody on YouTube has got a tutorial on how to do this. Absolutely. And, and even more importantly, I mean, what people don't realise is that the whole of the computer industry and the internet industry has grown up further and faster than any other industry before in history because it didn't have barriers to entry, saying you have to have this and that qualification to come in. And in fact, the arts graduates of your were very usefully employed in the computer industry. They became superb software programmers because they had been taught to think, uh, maybe on historical language problems. But the fact is they were agile thinkers and they were great at sol solving software logical problems. So how do we mature the computing industry? And I mean mature as in dealing to the cowboys we, we need to move it to a, a, a stronger ethical basis but how do we do it without breaking that innovation and creativity well i think that's a role that, that education can have some role to play in which is about using it creatively yes you know the internet is in danger of you know things like dark web and and unpleasant type things that go on in the dark web but think of the you know the huge benefits that such technology is also bringing to lots of other people and lots of other situations uh, just like you were saying about your son being able to look up anything he needs and you and i being able to look up anything we need um we are far you know i i, I think we we have no idea if we were back in Victorian times, we'd have no idea what was going on outside our village, really. But today uh, we are in position to know about, you know, people doing bad things at other sides of the world within within hours and 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 through time and um, development and understanding. Hopefully those things will not carry on the way they are at the present time. Yeah, the, the fact that we can see that police brutality in Minnesota um, must have a moderating effect on that kind of behaviour. Yeah. The fact that the rest of the world can see that so quickly through the ubiquity of the the phones, the phone camera, the, the, the people, the eyeballs all around the world calling it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, we don't, you know, the, I mean, I, I, I was surprised um, the other day by... Um, I think it was with um, it was with another competitor, a school in Auckland Mind Lab, where they uh, gave a brief survey on how much progress have we made against. I thought we'd made very little progress, but I was stunned to see when the answers were coming back that we'd made a significant amount of progress. It's just what we see. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Yes, I am. I am a rebel. Um, I'm certainly a rebel uh, because I believe we're, what's the word, holding back creativity. We're holding back a lot of 
potential in people at the present time for for the sake of so-called behavior and control. And I think if you give people the facts and you give people the opportunity to express themselves properly, they, they will become responsible from that act or from those actions. It's about belonging as opposed to not belonging. And a lot of people who are committing crimes and stuff and are there doing that because they don't belong and they don't feel valued and they, they think they're trash and behave like trash. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Um, the only advice I ha would have for listeners regarding particularly their children is, you know, their children can be wise beyond their years and listen to them and allow them to have their dreams and help them foster their dreams. Thank you very much for that. We're going out to... The third of your music choices, which coincidentally aligns with the theme that we're running at the moment, which is summer. So we're going out to Gershwin's Summertime. Thank you very much for joining me. Be my pleasure. Thanks, Sam. Thank you. 
exploring bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. We're broadcast on Otago Access Radio and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Gershwin's Summertime. It's Andrea Moto and the Joan Chimero Quintet. I'm Samuel Mann at Otago Polytechnic and in Snell's Beach, north of Auckland, I was joined by James Harrison. We hope you enjoyed the show. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.